This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Te Papa Hoora Christchurch Health Precinct holds its We're Talking Hoora Research Talks annually. It's an opportunity to showcase health researchers from Canterbury and their inspiring work to improve health outcomes for our community. This year, the evening of talks featured eight researchers discussing a range of topics across many health disciplines. This episode features Dr. Laura Joyce talking about the effects of alcohol on our emergency department, followed by Dr. Nienke Hagerdorn talking about tackling antimicrobial resistance. And finally, Dr. Rachel Purcell speaks about using microbiome to improve colorectal cancer treatment. So first of all, just want to thank my co-investigators who have been involved in this research, and particularly to the Health Promotion Agency who have provided funding for a study that we've been doing for almost 10 years now to allow us to look at the impact of alcohol on ED. Over 1,000 patients per year die due to alcohol in New Zealand. And it contributes to injuries, to violence, suicides, and it's associated with over 60 health conditions. And so it has a really big impact on our health system, in particular on our emergency department, because we are the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, and we do see the pointy end of alcohol-related harm. Now we know that a lot of people in New Zealand like to drink alcohol and most people do it safely. And that means they don't end up in ED coming to see me. Um, But we do know that if you present to ED with an injury, injury related to alcohol, you are five times more likely to die within the next year. This is not insignificant. We know from studies we've done in the last two years that 35% of our reports of violence and aggression in the ED are related to alcohol. ED is not a nice place to be. I would recommend you don't come and see us. (laughs) But it's also not a nice place for the patients, but also for the whanau who are there and for the staff who are dealing with lots of different things happening at the time and dealing with um, episodes of violence and aggression with patients who are drunk is really quite distressing for our staff. We also did a study this year that showed that of youth, so under 18, attending ED with mental health problems... 9% had been using alcohol or other drugs before they attended. This is under 18-year-olds who should not have any legal access to alcohol. And again, that is worrying. There's There's a bi-directional relationship between alcohol and mental health concerns. And looking at the big picture, 10% or 9% of patients has a really big impact. So we've been doing a study now for almost 10 years where we've had two medical students who have been in our department during November and December, um, and they've done 42 shifts between them. They, this year they screened 4,000 ED presentations um, to work out who was eligible to be involved in our study, and of the 2,500 patients, they found that 148 were impacted by alcohol. It doesn't seem that much, it's 6%. But they were covering every hour of the day. So they were doing shifts on a Monday morning and finding people who were impacted by alcohol coming to ED. This is not just a weekend problem. And so then what they did is they asked those people if they would like to take part in our study and they asked them some questions about where they bought their alcohol from and where they were drinking it. It is not 
young people drinking spirits and RTDs in bars that is our problem. It is middle-aged <clears throat> men um, who are buying their alcohol from supermarkets and liquor stores and they're drinking at home and that's where they're coming to harm. So we have this idea that it's the young people out there on the strip, but our data is showing that it's not. And so over 60% of the reasons why these people are attending is due to trauma, alcohol excess or mental health concerns. It's not all just medical problems. Um, a lot of people are just drinking beer and wine at home. It's not just spirits. Um, and two-thirds of patients are buying the majority of the alcohol off-licence, so that's in supermarkets and liquor stores. Bars are not our problem. They're not our biggest problem. So this is comparing the three cohorts that we've done this previously, uh, done this study, and so that males are winning, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, so that 65% of our patients coming into ED drunk are male. Um, they're getting older. The median age of these patients attending alcohol after having, uh, attending ED after having alcohol is 39 years. These are not teenagers or 20-year-olds. They're staying much longer. So the median time they're staying in ED is now 4.3 hours. That has a significant impact because I'm having to look after this patient while I can't look after your grandmother who's having a heart attack. And two-thirds of the people are buying their alcohol off licence. This is not the bars. So what's next? We need health policy to deal with this problem. We, we, we are the ambulance, we can't fix a problem in ED. Um, and that's when I rely on my public health colleagues to help with this messaging. This uh, on the screen is the Christchurch City Council alcohol, lo local alcohol policy from 2013, and you'll notice it's a draft. And it remains a draft, because Christchurch is one of the few big centres in New Zealand without a local alcohol policy. Um, and there are many reasons behind that, but it means that we don't have the teeth to make these changes. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the media about how we need to change those, those kids drinking on the strip um, and, you know, close the pubs early and things, but actually it's mum and dad at home that are causing the biggest impact for alcohol. So I guess the question is, where do we go to now? How do we make that change? We have politicians who are pushing. We have the Green Party particularly who are trying to help us get this through. Um, but there are many limiters in the way, which is making New Zealand a not very safe place with our drinking habits. And we're seeing that in ED. Thank you. Thank you all for the opportunity to talk about my, uh, one of my big research interests, antibiotics. Um, let's first start off with a question. Um, if you think about the last 10 years, um, who of you have taken an antibiotics in the last 10 years? Raise your hands. Yeah, that's quite a lot. And if in the last five years? Let's in the last 10 years. Excellent. I think it's, it's a bit like the New Zealand average, maybe a bit lower, but, uh, but we'll, see, we'll see about that. We'll talk a bit about why antibiotics are important, um, why antibiotic resistance is a, is a growing problem, and we'll talk a bit about our research findings of a project we did about the use of antibiotics here in Canterbury. So this fellow here, uh, Alexander Fleming, uh, he invented penicillin, and since the invention of penicillin and antibiotics, um, we have had a great uh, improvement of health uh, in the treatment of bacterial infections. Examples of bacterial infections um, are pneumonia, 
blood infections or meningitis. And since the availability um, of antibiotics, we have an option to treat those. So it's a great improvement of health, um, uh, what happened in the, in the last century. However, antibiotics are not a magic cure for all things. Um, and actually, they do not work effectively for viral infections. Infections by viruses are a common cold, a flu, or COVID-19. Um, and antibiotics do not work for these. The overuse of antibiotics um, has led to a growing problem of anti antibiotic resistance. And antibiotic resistance is an issue that occurs when bacteria uh, develop the ability to resist the effects of antibiotics. This means that antibiotics that used to be effective against these bacteria no longer work. And this makes the these infections much harder to treat. This is a serious problem, and it leads to longer hospitalizations, um, harder to treat infections, and sometimes even death. In 2019, antibiotic-resistant bacteria were the cause of global deaths in 1.3 million people. And sometimes these bacteria are resistant to multiple antibiotics, and then we have no treatment options any, uh, anymore available, um, so-called superbugs. So what's happening in New Zealand? In New Zealand, 95% of antibiotics are used in the community, so not in the hospital. New Zealand is quite a high prescriber country. We're ranked fourth um, compared to other high-income countries. Greece, Italy, and Korea um, were higher than us, but all other high-income countries had lower antibiotic use. And other numbers suggest that 30% of antibiotics used are actually not necessary. So what does New Zealand do? What does Canterbury do to improve antibiotic use so we can reduce antibiotic-resistant bacteria? There's been a lot of awareness campaigns in the community, in healthcare workers, in GPs, to, to reduce antibiotics. Also, there have been a lot of guideline changes to improve the antibiotic groups we use. So discouraging antibiotic groups that are related to uh, antibiotic resistance. So has that done anything? Well, in our study, we looked at antibiotic use in Canterbury in the last decade. This happened between 2012 and 21. And we actually saw large reductions. It reduced by 30%, which is actually a great achievement. This 30% um, corresponds with an uh, reduction of 4.2% each year. Also, we saw a large reduction in antibiotic groups with high risk for resistance. Those re were reduced from 22% to 12%. Also, reductions across ethnic groups reduced over time. So we actually saw improvement in equity. And the largest reductions were observed in children. Children uh, below five years of age were actually the biggest groups which we saw the largest reductions in. So it's actually all positive. So what should you take away from this, from this short talk? Well, antibiotic use decreased in Canterbury over the last 10 years. This actually showed that efforts in education and awareness campaigns and guidelines changes, that actually pays off. It works. However, Antibiotic use in Canterbury is still higher than the European average. And other research suggests 
that we can still further reduce antibiotics without compromising health outcomes. So actually, there's still more work to be done. I want to thank our team who worked together with me on this, especially Ben Hudson and uh, Ibrahim, who supervised me, uh, Tony Walls, uh, Sharon Gardner, and uh, Paul Richard for the data collection. Thank you all. Kiara. Um, before I talk about colorectal cancer and the impact of the microbiome, I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview of the microbiome. I'm sure most of us have heard of it. Um, we walk into a supermarket these days and we see something about the microbiome or our local pharmacy or even on a billboard as we're driving along, as the microbiome promises you um, face creams that will give you eternal youth. Um, <laughs> so maybe not. Uh, so we're probably... Be know or, or think we know that you know our DNA is what makes us what we are but in fact we're actually outnumbered about 10 to 1 when it comes to bacterial and microbial cells on our body and when it comes to our DNA we're only about 1% human and the rest is microbial DNA so that's what the microbiome is it's all those bugs it's our viruses uh, bacteria fungi archaea that live on us and in us and all their genetic material so that's what the microbiome is and we didn't really know much about this until about, say, 10, 15 years ago. I used to say five years ago, but time has passed. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have the technology to actually um, understand or even to study this. So we didn't know anything about it. But now, in, with the recent advances, we know that the microbiome plays such an important role in human health, um, and particularly the gut microbiome. So it's got a really important role in nutrition, metabolism. So when we eat food... As humans, we actually don't have all of the, um, say, the proteins and the enzymes that we need to break down the food and actually use that nutrition. But the bugs in our guts actually do provide those enzymes. So they actually do a really important job for us in um, giving us our nutrition and um, helping us to make vitamins and synthesize lots of um, waste products that we need to get rid of. Another really important role is um, in our immune response. So we know from animal studies that have been done that animals without a, an intact microbiome actually don't develop a proper immune system. So the um, microbiome actually helps to train our immune system from birth to recognize pathogens, so the bad bugs that are coming to attack us and actually pr um, prevent that happening. So it's really important in our immune response. And an area that's um, getting a little bit of uh, more attention recently is actually the interaction between the gut microbiome and the brain. So we're only starting to discover now um, how important that is and how the bugs in our gut actually um, communicate to our brain through our enteric nervous system, which is this massive um, nervous system that kind of wraps around our guts. We're only really starting to kind of uh, get a handle on that. So with all those really important roles, like, how do we have an, uh, a healthy microbiome? That's a, a million-dollar question. Because um, every one of us has a, a unique microbiome. We're all different. And we know from all these studies that have been done recently that loads and loads of things can actually influence the microbiome. And some of them we really can't do anything about. So things like the way we were born, if it was by C-section or just by vaginal birth, how we're fed as a, an infant... Um, but there are things that you can actually do and change. Um, things like, you know, whether you smoke or not. If you have a pet or not. It's good to have a dog, apparently. Um, you know, how much exercise you take. Things like that can really affect your microbiome. And diet is a really, really important thing. 
So it's, it's really about getting that balance right and uh, trying to be as, as healthy as we can um, you know, within limits. So when that balance kind of is a little bit off, um, what we're starting to learn now is that the microbiome can contribute to a whole host of diseases. Practically every disease that you can think of, there's been some sort of association with the microbiome, even though we don't have the information yet to actually tell exactly what's going on. So one of the areas that I'm really interested in is um, in cancer, and particularly in colorectal cancer. So colorectal cancer, as you may know, most of us know somebody who's had colorectal cancer, and it's um, a big global problem. And in New Zealand, we actually have one of the highest rates in the world. And in South Canterbury, we actually have the highest rate in New Zealand. Um, so although the rate is actually decreasing over the last about 15 years, and particularly with uh, screening programs, which is great, what we're seeing is an increase in younger people under the age of 50. And that's particularly worrying for us. So what we're interested in, in our group is um, looking at different types of treatments for colorectal cancer and how we can potentially make them better. Because um, uh, if you're diagnosed with uh, colorectal cancer and you have an early stage disease, uh, normally you can be treated by surgery alone and it often has a very good outcome. But if, there are, um, if the tumours are a bit more advanced or if patients get relapsed tumours, um, the, there are quite uh, limitations to how we, we can treat the tumours. There aren't that many medications that we can use. And even new technology or new uh, treatments like immunotherapy that use the um, body's own immune system to help fight tumours um, aren't very effective for colorectal cancer. So we wanted to carry out some studies and we're very lucky in um, Christchurch in that we have the Cancer Society Tissue Bank. And that's where um, patients actually donate part of their tumours when they have surgery and uh, researchers like myself are able to use them for research um, into cancer. So we carried out a really big study in Christchurch um, in our single centre and we were able to look at the microbiomes of a huge number of tumours. And what we found, and we were the first people in the world to see this, was that different subtypes of colorectal cancer had completely different microbiomes. Um, and that was really, really key in that we were able to show that um, the different microbiomes were actually interacting with immune cells within the tumour environment. And that's very important because the new types of therapies like immunotherapy um, really rely on the immune cells that are around the tumour cells. So just to kind of, um, in a nutshell of five years, we did a lot of lab-based experiments. <laughs> and we're at the point now where we're actually starting to very early stage um, drug development using microbiome-based therapies um, to try and make colorectal cancer more amenable to new therapies like immunotherapy. So another area that we're really interested in is in rectal cancer. So rectal, ca rectal cancers are um, cancers basically at the end of the colon. And uh, as I said, um, uh, colorectal cancer is increasing in young people. And this is mainly driven by an increase in rectal cancers. So we treat um, uh, rectal cancers a little bit different, differently to the ones in the colon. So we usually give some radiotherapy first. And this is to shrink the tumours down. But interestingly, some people respond really, really, really well to radiotherapy. And the tumours just completely shrink, they're gone after, say, about six to eight weeks or maybe 12 weeks. Um, other people 
they don't have any response. Their tumours sometimes even get bigger. And then we have everybody else whose tumours maybe shrink a little bit. But we have no way of telling when we start to, to treat these people how they're going to actually respond. So we wanted to have a look and see if the microbiomes of the tumours would give us any clue to what was happening. Um, and this could prevent overtreatment, particularly, so people who um, may not respond to radiotherapy could actually avoid having it. So we looked at um, about 40 patients uh, in collaboration with the group in Melbourne. And we saw a really, really interesting result that people who went on to have a complete response, so whose tumours completely vanished after radiotherapy, had a very, very distinct microbiome. So all of this is actually happening, this research in Christchurch, in Canterbury. And um, it's, it's really uh, amazing, I think, you know, how we're able to do this in, in Christchurch. And we found some really, really key findings, um, and I think are kind of leading the way in some ways globally. Um, that I, and we were showing that tumour that, that, sorry, the bacteria that are actually inside the tumours um, can affect how the patients respond to therapy. And we've shown that immune cells are really key as well. And now that's helping us, we hope, to actually develop some predictive biomarkers that we'll be able to use in the clinic so the patients can actually be treated more effectively. And we're trying to develop some microbiome-based drugs. And I really want to thank um, the Cancer Society Tissue Bank and all the patients who donate their tissue. Very key to what we do in the research here. Thank you. You've been listening to We're Talking Haora, a series of research talks given by researchers from Te Papa Haora Christchurch Health Precinct.